During the month of July, I have decided that we will talk about many different aspects of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And because it is a treasure that I have found out in my Christian life, I want to communicate that to you. Last year, I did a lot of backgrounds, a lot of historical backgrounds, what was happening, and, and it is just difficult to understand. I understand. So this year, what I did and what I am doing during this month is to talk about some of the events in my own life that I said, aha, oh wow, that the Westminster Confession could be really be helpful and useful in my Christian life. So far Sunday, we talked about a question that I've heard in my seminary time that someone asked, what's the difference between the good works that the non-believers do in New Orleans after Katrina and the Christian groups that they go down to rebuild the city? What's the difference? How would you answer that question? Another question that we dealt with last Sunday was that question that we talked about, the fourth paragraph in the justification chapter. Because one of my professors, really, he confused me by saying that if you are chosen, you do not have to repent and believe. Because you are chosen, you are a child of God forever. So that confused me. So we talked about that from that paragraph. And if you knew that paragraph, then you did not, you really, you, you didn't have to go through that period of confusion that I went through, if I knew that, but I didn't know that. So I am trying to show you some positive things from the Westminster Confession so that you could someday say, you know what, let me just read this because so many people say good things about the Westminster Confession. Let me really try to study it and it will it will do you good for the rest of your life. It is worth your time. And today, what I want to do is to, again, to take you back to another time in my life, another confusion. So let me take you back to 2011. That's what, 12 years ago? 2011, I began working at a church and the youth group was supposed to go to summer missions, short-term missions. I don't know how many of you have been to that kind of mission, uh, mission, short-term missions. But that youth pastor couldn't go. So the church asked me to go. So I led about, I don't know, less than 20 teenagers and a couple of teachers to Arizona, to the Navajo Nation. It is a sovereign country, as you know. It is an American, Native Americans or Indian reservation. Huge reservation. Navajo Nation. And the place that, I went, that we went was a Korean missionary who went there about 20 years before. So now it's been about 30 some years. But that time, they were there already 25 years or so. They purchased probably about 30 acres of land, and they built a Christian school. There's a small boarding room, boarding school, 
and many classrooms and huge open air gym. There's a roof, but it is open air. And the lot was huge. So they've been there for a long time. So every summer, many, many Korean American churches will go to that mission center or to that missionary to help them do the summer missions. And if you go, what do you do? You do VBS. You do home building or home、uh, renovation or help people do things. But when youth group people go, they usually conduct and do skits, sports, VBS, and so on. So we went, and there were two other churches. So in total, about three churches were there with missionary、uh, couple. And what do you do every night? You gather and you worship in the morning or in the evening when you wrap things up. You have time of prayer, praise and worship, preaching, teaching, things like that. So very first night when we gathered in that open air gym. Each church, they you know, they spread out things. They prepare VBS materials and so on. And the time was for the worship time. So we gathered, and the missionary he told us, because he's a missionary, hosting missionary, he wanted to teach young people. To that we said gladly, please do. I、uh, want our children, young guys, to listen to your ministry experiences and so on. So I remember three groups are sitting. And there's a blackboard, and the missionary comes up to the front, and the teachers. And I was the only pastor because the two other churches they didn't have pastors. They had deacons and deaconesses. They brought the children or the teens, whatever. So we were standing in the back, and the youth they were sitting in the front, and there was a missionary, and he began saying something like this. And this is not 100% correct, but. This is accurate to the point where I want to talk about this. He said this, and this could be very controversial, and I know it would be, but I would say it anyways because this was, this really happened in my own life. Listen to this. He said, "The white Christians came and killed the natives, and took their land and their livelihood, which is true in some sense, right?" and They did that in the name of Christ, he said, and they went on to establish churches and boarding schools to ex- exterminate the natives. And he said, "So I cannot believe in their God, God who allowed them to commit genocides." God who destroyed the Indians and their cultures, Native Americans. So I no longer believe in their God and cannot preach the same gospel that they preached. And I remember listening to him, and I was not expecting anything like that. I thought he was going to explain the gospel. He was going to give a talk about how he survived in that desert land. Instead, he spent about 25 years in that reservation, and he was doing big ministry. He was a very well-known missionary. But some way, somewhere, he lost his faith, and he said. 
The people who committed that genocide against the natives, they were Christians, he said. And because they, they did that as Christians in the name of Christ, and they actually went on to build churches and they wanted to make them into Christians, I do not want to do anything to do with that kind of God. I do not believe in that kind of God. And I cannot preach that kind of the gospel. And I remember turning to my teachers and asking them with, you know, with you know, my eyes, what's going on? And I turned to another church leaders, a couple of churches, their leaders, and they are looking at me, I'm looking at them, everybody's confused. And I cannot recall what I said. I don't know if I remember, I don't know if I stopped him from saying things, but that meeting ended really quickly. And it was too late. And I told that missionary, we will meet tomorrow morning. And I don't remember what I said or did that night. But I remember going into his office with the leaders of other churches. Because at that time, that night, I told my teachers that I cannot stay here. We cannot stay here. We came here for a week of ministry. But if that missionary says something like that, uh, that I cannot let my children, youth group, sitting under him, and he is poisoning uh, their minds. To be clear, facts are facts. What had happened to the Indians or the Native Americans, it really happened. It is, it is history. You cannot change that. It is, a, it is uncomfortable and inconvenient truth. Facts are facts. I'm not contesting that. But when you say something like, it is that Christian God who allowed them to do that, and they are Christians who killed so many... I don't know if any of you went to been to Native, Native American missions. I've been there quite a few times. If you go talk to the elders of the tribes, they remember. They remember what was done to their forefathers. And they'll be very hostile towards any Christians. But it was a good and high time for Korean Americans to preach the gospel. I preached many, many times that Gospel worked in, in my life, in Asian Americans and Korean Americans, and I'm here to preach the gospel. And many times we had good fruit that we have seen. Next morning we went in, the lay leaders, and I went in and I told them, Pastor, missionary, Whatever happened to you, I am very sorry to hear, but if you insist on teaching my kids every night like that, I simply have to pack up and leave this place. Or, because we came, we will do our own thing, and I will teach and preach, and I will do, we will do what we are here to do, do the VBS and things like that, with your permission, this is your place, but I simply want you to know we cannot 
let you teach our children. And he said, that's fine. That's fine. You do your own thing. I'll stay out of my way. And uh, he would be very grateful if we stay and do and finish our short-term missions. So I remember staying there for about a week. And the vast, the vastness of the land. You have to be there to, to, to experience. We would drive hour and a half to simply go one way to pick up kids. And come back hour and a half back to the base. And do the program, eat together, and drop them off hour and a half one way, hour and a half come back. And if you go to the reservations, you know why so many people drop out of school because there are schools that is that are twenty miles away, thirty miles away. So in the beginning, people go to school, but when your school is about thirty miles away, and you do not have transportation often. You just simply don't go. And so many little houses that we went to, they do not have any kind of running waters and heat, restroom facilities, things like that, that we enjoy this. They do have kind of a generator, so they do kind of this electricity. But you'll be surprised how in 21st century, in America, North America, people live like that. Kids running around without shoes. and I mean, it's just, it is just unbelievable what's happening. So we finished and came back. And now what I, want you to talk, what I want to talk about is that confusion. The question was this. Can you be a murderer and true Christian at the same time? That's what he was saying. He was saying they were murderers, but they were Christians. Why? Because they believed in Christ. You see, that's a theological question. And it was a first time in my life that I confronted a life, real-life situation where actually theology mattered. Many times in Christian church, you don't encounter that kind of problem. You go to church. You go through the order of worship and you listen to somebody preaching, teaching. And you went to a Bible-believing, gospel-believing church. So you don't hear anything really unorthodox. But when I took them to remote place, really in the desert, when a trusted missionary says something like that, what would you do and what would you say? Do you pack up and come home? Do you fight with that missionary, try to correct him? What do you do? But what he was saying was that you could be a murderer and Christian at the same time because that person or persons, people, group of people, were Christians. Why were they Christians? Because they believed in Christ. So I told youth group kids, they are not Christians. But we'll get to that. But let me give you some of the questions that were in my own, in my own heart. 
It's not a simple question. Listen to these questions. Was it a murder? Was it a murder when, whenever, wherever it happened, U.S. Army invading a tribe and nullifying the treaty that they made with the federal government and killing whatever people? Was it murder? Or was it a war? Did the person commit murder voluntarily and enjoyed it? Or was he or the group of men did that under the direct orders from a commander? So many Nazi war criminals said that. I did that because I had an order from my superiors and I had to obey. Did they, who killed the natives or Indians, did they repent of their sins after? And as I was there, I was thinking, so many people just do the missions. Do the missions, go to missions, and come home. But what are we supposed to do there? Preach the gospel and come home? Is that what we're supposed to do? Well, what, what does, it was 2011, so it was before this 2020 or pandemic stuff that we have witnessed. So I was asking, if the United States government acknowledges the wrongdoing, what are they supposed to do? Discussions nowadays about the reparations about the black community. I mean, I was asking the same question. Are the government, this government, are they supposed to give the land back? How? It's a total mess. Of a situation. And I remember asking this question to so many of my friends, not Asian Americans, but the rest. And my Ligonier Ministries, Westminster. I would ask these questions hey, what do you think about the Native Americans? What do you think we're supposed to do? You know what everybody said? At least in my small life experience? They all ignored my question. They would not take up that question. They would not talk about it. Why is that? Because it is a very, very uncomfortable truth. So that's that. Let me ask this again, these questions, follow-up questions from that question. From my perspective, that missionary, his faulty conclusion stemmed from his wrong premises, that is, a murderer is a Christian simply because he confessed and believed in Christ. So in his theology, if someone believes in Christ, he is a Christian, no matter what. And what he does afterwards, he does that in the name of Christ as a Christian. That, that's his thesis. That is why he says, I cannot believe in that kind of gospel, God, Christ, whatever. But that thesis, it raises so many of the following questions. Listen to these questions, follow questions. What is the nature of saving faith? Is it just believing 
What are the contents of the saving faith? What do you need to believe? What does confessing Christ entail? Is repentance important? Is it part of equation? Does repentance work in the same way for a minor sin and a major or heinous crime? So do you repent in the same way if you lie to your parents and if you kill a person with intention to kill? Not by accident, but a murder. Is that the same way? Are we supposed to repent? Does repentance work the same way? Then are there degrees in sin? Different kinds of sins, different degrees in sins? If so, are there degrees in God's punishment? There are different rooms that you're going to when you go to hell, depending on the crimes that you committed? If so, should there be different degrees of repentance? Is one act of repentance enough? Or should you continue to repent of that particular sin if it is a major sin? When you begin to ask these questions, what you will encounter and you realize is that you will begin to employ many of the categories or Terms that the Catholic Church used. Venial sins, mortal sins, congruent merit or condign merit, and so on. There are different divisions and degrees in their theology, and you will understand what they were doing. They did not set out to make up a false theology. They wanted to answer all these questions. Mortal sin, venial sins, repentance, penance, depending on the degree of sin that you committed. These are venial sins, these are mortal sins. How long you're supposed to repent. All of that really came up as a response to all these questions. How much sin can you commit before you become a non-Christian? How do you know that you are forgiven? If you commit a murder, let's say you repented, how do you know that God forgave you? Once justified, always justified? Can lack of sanctification destroy or nullify your justification? If you commit murder, does that erase your justification? Or was that the true justification? Does your justification depend or require sanctification? Then how much sanctification is required to validate your justification? And so on. You see, this is not an easy question. And that simple uh, lecture that he gave some 12 years ago, really made me think and study all these questions. And I am not here to talk about all the issues that I talked about. We'll be here forever. Uh, But I will just point you to a few places and see if that 
make sense to you? Can someone be a murderer and Christian at the same time? Because he claims to be a Christian, he believes in Christ, and he goes out and kills someone. Once again, that is a complicated situation with that Native American situation. But aside from that particulars, how would you answer that? What I said to at the time to the youth group was the following. I think I'm still correct, but you will see. I told them you cannot be a Christian and murder at the same time, simply because he confessed Christ or he believes himself to be a Christian. Especially unrepentant act of murder nullifies one's claim of being a Christian, however sincere he may believe that. He is a Christian. And I remember giving a couple of passages. And I want you to turn there and look with me. First one was Galatians 5. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, Jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, and factions. Envying, drunkenness, carousing. Carousing is kind of sort of like drunkenness. And things like these. Obviously, I don't see murder named in that category. But listen to what it says afterwards, of which I forewarn you, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The last sentence. Murder is a higher degree sin than all these things. So if you practice these things and the verdict of God's word is that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, which basically tells me you, you cannot enter. You cannot enter into the kingdom of God if you practice such things. The higher degree sin, obviously, just common sense teaches, murder is worse than lying. So, I told them, if they cannot inherit the kingdom of God, then obviously murderer cannot go into heaven. Once again, it is a complicated situation. If they repented sincerely, believing in the gospel afterwards, and then obviously their sins will be forgiven. But if you were Christian, under the direct orders from your commanding officer, what are you supposed to do? You resist and you die, or you simply do the act? Again, those are very difficult questions. But theologically speaking, so I looked it up, John Calvin. What did he say about this? He says this regarding this passage. But in this way, we shall be told, all are cut off from the hope of salvation. For who is there that is not chargeable with some of those sins? 
Basically, we have sinned in this category somewhere. He says, I reply, Paul does not threaten that all men who have sinned, but that all who remain impenitent shall be excluded from the kingdom of God. The saints themselves often fall into grievous sins like these, but they return to the path of righteousness, and therefore they are not included in this catalog. All threatenings of judgments of God call us to repentance. It is here to warn us. But if you do not repent and just go on about living like this, and it is contrast, this passage is contrasted against the fruit of the Spirit. So fruit of the Spirit are the Christians. They will bear the fruit. But people in the flesh, they will live like this, and they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Another passage that I've given them was Romans 1. Next page, if you return to Romans 1, it says, Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind to do those things which are not proper, having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, but here I find murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, violent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the righteous requirement of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. These are not an exhaustive list of things that you must commit before you be consigned to hell, no. But these are the fruits of all unrighteousness against which His wrath, God's wrath, is revealed from, from heaven against all those people. But murder or envy, all these things will be done by the people who are unrepentant and who are not really born-again Christians. And John Murray says about this passage, this is an evidence of God's abandonment of people, abandoning them to sin, all unrighteousness. So this was a couple, these were a couple of passages that I've told them. And another passage you could give out is John 8, how Satan the devil was the murderer from the beginning. Murder, committing a murder, really, really puts someone's claim into question. And as I began to study this topic more and more, this could be a controversy akin to what happened in the late 80s. And the controversy is known as this, the Lordship Salvation Controversy. Lordship Salvation Controversy. The main actor is John MacArthur. In his book, The Gospel According to Jesus. In it, he argues in this way. I will just 
read one sentence. He says, Jesus is Lord of all. And the biblical mandate is not to make Christ Lord, but rather to bow to his lordship. Those who reject his lordship or give mere lip service to his sovereignty and his language is are not saved. That's his thesis and it's known as the lordship controversy because he says Jesus has to be your Lord and Savior, which is correct. But the way in which he argues about that in his book, The Gospel According to Jesus, to me it sounded a lot like your justification must be proven by your sanctification. So I read another book by Michael Horton. Michael Horton is a Reformed uh, theologian professor at Westminster West. And he edited a book against John MacArthur. And the book is The Reformation and Lordship Controversy. And he renounces the party that MacArthur is renouncing. We call them antinomians. But he would also rebuke John MacArthur's thesis, and this is what he says. Listen to what Michael Horton says, and he is correct. He says, Faith produces obedience. But to suggest that faith is obedience is to confuse justification with sanctification. So in one sense, MacArthur is correct. But when you keep on insisting, you must acknowledge Lord, Christ as Lord. And if I don't see any of the fruit of the Lordship in your life, then you are not saved. That, that is a radical claim. So you must be careful in going about using the word salvation. So MacArthur uses the term salvation without qualifying that word, what do you mean by that? And when you read the Westminster Confession, salvation is divided in or looked at from different perspective. And we cannot spend too much. I know it's already hard. We spent too much time already. But I am, we are going to simply read a couple of sections of the larger catechism and we'll be done. And obviously, we have a lot more to talk about and a lot more topics that we could read from it. But just a couple of the questions and see what it says, what it teaches, the Westminster teaches. 73. How does faith justify a sinner in the sight of God? Answer is, faith justifies a sinner in the sight of God. You see, we are not simply talking about a big category of salvation, but justifying. Faith justifies a sinner in the sight of God not because of those other graces which, which do always accompany it. Yes, it does accompany it, but it is not because of those, he says. Or of good works that are the fruits of it. You see what they are saying? 
good works flow out of justification, but they are not justified because of the fruits of that justification. That is contrary to what MacArthur will argue in his book. No, as if the grace of faith or any act thereof were imputed to him for his justification, but only as it is an instrument by which he receives and applies Christ and his righteousness. When you talk about salvation in a big category, it is confusing. It is so confusing. But when you break it into different categories so that we can understand, Justification does not depend on other graces that do always accompany it, nor because of the good works that are the fruits of it, though you will see fruits of justification necessarily flowing out of it, but it is not because of that. So they distinguish, clarifies what John MacArthur just lumps it together. Question 77. Wherein do justification and sanctification differ? What's the difference between the two? Although sanctification be inseparably joined with justification, they do not want to separate them. We'll distinguish it to clarify it, justification from sanctification, but we don't want to say it is separated. So if you separate them two, what happens? You become an antinomian. That is, I'm a Christian, I'm justified, and I could go kill a person. Doesn't matter. I'm forgiven, I'm a justified sinner. Because you have justification, sanctification separated. Kind of make sense? So they were the group of people that the missionary was describing. His theology was separating the justification and sanctification. So as long as you're justified, nothing will touch that justification. But the confession is saying, no, no. It is distinct, but you don't want to separate it like that. But you don't want to put that so commingled together and confuse the two. MacArthur, what he's saying, almost confusing it. So unless you're sanctified, you are not justified. We don't want to say that either. It's somewhere in between. We want to keep justification pure and simple, distinct from sanctification. But you don't want to put that together, mix it together like this. But we don't want to separate them too as if these two realities are separate realities. We don't want to do that. Then you end up becoming like that missionary. You understand what I'm saying? You're justified. You believe it. That's all it takes. You believe, then you're set. No matter what you do, you will still be justified. But I would say no. You cannot be a justified person and you go and kill a person. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot do that. So, you want to put it close like this, make it a distinct yet inseparable realities in Christ. Or though sanctification be inseparably joined with justification, yet they differ. In what way? In that God in justification imputeth, imputes the righteousness of Christ. In sanctification, His Spirit infuses grace 
and enableth to the exercise thereof. In the former, in the justification, sin is pardoned. In the other, it is subdued. The one, that justification, does equally free all believers from the revenging wrath of God. And that perfectly in this life, what is? Justification is perfect in your life. That they never fall into condemnation. Correct. But the other is neither equal. That other is sanctification is neither equal in all, nor in this life perfect in any, but growing up to perfection. There are so many questions you could go back and read, and you will be well served if you study those. But see, that's what I'm trying to get at. Life is not simple. And the questions that come out of our life situation, they are very, very complicated. And we need to turn to the Bible. But since we are not all experts in the Bible, and it requires some kind of theology, we need to study it. But where do you go to? Do you go to MacArthur? With that missionary situation, you study only MacArthur because you're a fan of MacArthur? But you will not be, then you will not be well served. Where do you go? What I am simply saying is that we Presbyterians have cherished the Westminster Confession for now about 500 years or, years or so. Do read it. It will teach you good stuff. And that was today's lesson. Let's pray.